0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So God willing, today we're going to continue where we left off um, in Second Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to read uh, the beginning of the, the chapter from the beginning, just kind of briefly to go over the parts that we had covered last time, which was two weeks ago, um, and then we'll continue from, from this week's. But I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. Remember, we were speaking about how St. Paul had promised in 1 Corinthians that he was going to visit uh, the uh, Corinthians in person, okay? Um, But he wasn't able to, right? And so one of the reasons he was saying that he didn't want to come again so quickly was because all of the things that he had rebuked them for in the first uh, epistle, he wanted them to, like... Um, to to, to have an opportunity to correct them so that when he comes and visits them in person, he is not forced to focus so much on those negative things because he wants to come, like, enjoy. He wants to come joyfully. He wants to come and to commend them for what they're doing, to encourage them, and not to find a lot of problems. So he didn't want to come to them so quickly so that they would have a chance to, um, to solve those problems. For if I make you sorrowful, Then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Meaning you are the ones that make me glad and I don't want you to be sorrowful or else I also will be sorrowful. And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. So he's saying you are my joy and I am your joy. So again, I don't want to come and see you sorrowful.
1: Yes. What was it the last verse?
0: Wasn't there a similar verse like that in chapter one? Yes, but no, it was a little earlier. So actually, we just um, this one, right? Is this the one you're talking about? And he who is he who makes me glad, he who is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me, is that the one? Well, I mean,
1: I, I remember, I remember these two, but I was think
0: wasn't there one chapter one as well? Uh, I can't remember now. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you." Right? He's he's writing to them and he's experiencing affliction because he is concerned about them. He's worried about their salvation, right? Um, not wanting them to be sorrowful, but because he feels genuine concern um, for them out of his love. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent not to be too severe, okay? Here he begins to speak about who? The man who had fallen into sin. So in First Corinthians, there was a man who had married his stepmother, okay? And he was living with her and he had this sinful relationship. And Saint Paul rebuked the man and he rebuked the church as a whole, essentially saying, that um, they were not taking this situation seriously. They were accepting the situation. They were not rebuking the man. They were not trying to correct him or anything. So when St. Paul found about it, he was was upset about the situation and he was upset at the church as a whole because they didn't take it seriously and they didn't take any action against it. So here he's gonna start speaking about this situation. This man had repented, okay? This man has repented. And so St. Paul is speaking about the benefit that he experienced, the man experienced, by being put out of the church, because St. Paul had essentially put him out of the church. Um, He had said what in 1 Corinthians, deliver him to Satan. That's the words that he used, meaning that he's going to allow him to be out of the church, not permitted to come to the church, so that he would feel the weight of the the burden of sin on him, that he would repent. Okay, So here, St. Paul is referring again to the situation that happened in the 1 Corinthians in the letter. Okay? So um, he's saying this man, okay, which caused grief to St. Paul is actually causing grief to everyone, okay? But all of you, he has not just grieved me, but he's grieved all of us because when there is a person who falls into sin, it grieves the entire body of Christ because we are one body. And when, when one of us falls away, it hurts the, the, the entire body of Christ and not just that person individually. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. This punishment, which was putting him out of the church. So St. Paul is the one who instructed the church to put him out of the church. So this is why he's saying this punishment was inflicted by the majority, by the church itself to do this for him. So that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. And I believe this is where we stopped last time. Essentially, St. Paul is saying, now that he has repented, bring him back into the church, show him forgiveness and mercy and love. Don't keep pointing out the wrongs that he has committed. Reaffirm that you've been loving him this whole time. And actually, um, even the act of putting him out of the church was an act of love. It was not an act of hatred. It was an act of love designed to help this person to return again. Okay. This is where we stop any questions about this part so far before we move on. Okay. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you're obedient in all things. Okay, So he's questioning now. Um, he, well, he's not questioning, but he is he's saying that one of the one of the, the reasons that I gave this commandment to you to execute which was putting this man out of the church, was to test their, the obedience of the Corinthians, right? He wanted to see that the obedience would, the Corinthians would follow his direction and guidance, okay? St. John Chrysostom, he speaks about this point. He says, Paul needs to know whether the Corinthians are equally obedient to restore the sinner as they were to punish him. You know, it's easy to punish someone, right? Because by our very nature, um, We are quick to judge, right? And once we identify a person as being a bad guy, as a person who's done something wrong, we are quick to insult them. We are quick to ostracize them. We are quick to make them feel bad about what they've done. We are quick to gossip about them. We are quick to do all kinds of things, right? Once we identify in our minds, there's a bad person in our midst, it's easy for us to make them feel miserable. Okay. And sometimes, and and, and that definitely was not what St. Paul wanted right? Putting him out of the church was not an act of, you know, of of unfair judgment against him, right? It it was actually, like I said, an act of love designed to help him to come back. So even as the congregation is uh, rebuking this man, even as the congregation is putting him out of the church, St. Paul wants to emphasize that all of this is done in love for the desire of this man to repent so that ultimately he would come back to the church and be accepted 100%. Okay, so just as he had commanded them to put the man out now he's wanting that they would follow his instruction from bringing him back because, like I said, it's easier to put somebody out. When somebody comes into the church who has a reputation for having committed some sin or fallen into some trespass or something very common that people you know don't feel comfortable. Or they talk about this person behind their back at what this person does. or we don't feel. Um, comfortable to put this person in a service, you know so it's like what about the stuff that this person did you know in the past, how is this person going to be responsible for this and this right. But this is not the spirit of Christ, this is not the spirit of love and forgiveness that should be in the church, the church is a place where we are all sinners, that there is none of us that is here. And because of our righteousness and perfection deserve any service, deserve any love, deserve any kindness, deserve anything from the Lord. It is because the Lord is kind and because the Lord is forgiving and because the Lord is merciful that he allows us to be here. So this man who was put out of the church, now having repented, is no different than any other member of the congregation. And so here St. Paul is saying, Um, I am testing your obedience to restore him again. This is what St. John Chrysostom is speaking about. Paul needs to know whether the Corinthians are equally obedient to restore the sinner as they were to punish him. As punishment may bear some kind of envy and hatred. Meaning, what is really your motivation for putting him out? Was your motivation for putting him out really an act of love? Because you really wanted what's best for him? Or are you putting him out because you hate him? Are you putting him out because you judge him? Are you putting him out because you despise him? Because if it is the case that you despise him and you hate him, you will not be able to bring him back because your feeling of hatred toward him is unchanged. Okay. While by working on restoring him with love, they show their obedience to be pure. That is the test of the true disciples, whether their obedience is when they are commanded to do something or also to consummate it on their own. Okay. He wants them to be doing this out of love. He doesn't want them to restore the man simply because of commandment. He wants them to understand this principle of mercy and to bring the man back and to feel like he is one of them and he, he is he's joining with them. Okay. Now, whom you forgive anything I also forgive for if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Again, St. John Chrysostom, he says, by giving the leadership to the Corinthians, because what St. Paul is doing here is essentially giving them the leadership, saying, you now, um, whoever you forgive, I forgive, right? If you forgive this person, if you've deemed that this person has repented, if you've this person is back in your midst and you forgive them, I forgive them. So St. John Chrysostom is saying, by giving the leadership to the Corinthians and by telling them that he is going to follow up their reaction, he did this best. So he did his best to appease the rebellious souls of whom of those who love controversy, lest they would be slothful and refrain to forgive the man. He applied the pressure of telling them that he himself has already forgiven him. He wants the church to do the right thing for the right reasons. Right? You know, it's one thing when say the bishop comes and he tells us, do XYZ. And everybody's oh, do XYZ, you have to do this. We do it without even understanding why we are doing it. You know, Sayyidna oftentimes he would tell the priests when people ask you, "Why do we do such?" Don't don't answer them and say because Sayyidna said, right? Because the answer because Sayyidna said is not an answer. Like like the reason Sayyidna is giving us certain rules. Okay, there's a reason behind those rules. They're not arbitrary. Right? They're not just because of his preference, necessarily. There could be real reasons behind them. So, whenever we are practicing something in the church and we don't understand what it is, then we need to find out the reason, right? Um, beyond even because Sayyidna says. There's a reason why Sayyidna thinks a certain way, right? So, here, like St. Paul is saying, I want you to forgive the man for the sake of love and forgiveness because this is the commandment of Christ. Because this is what it means to be a Christian not because I'm coming to you with a command and saying, put him out and then bring him back, right? I want you naturally on your own to realize that his actions require that he be put out of the church and that after his repentance, naturally, that he is supposed to come back into the church, right? Because when this is the the sign of a church that's functioning properly, that's functioning not because of everything as a commandment, not everything is given by the authority of the bishop, But it is working as, again, the body of Christ, that our our Lord is Christ. It is not just the bishop who tells us what to do. We are all, including the bishop, who is following the Lord. Let Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Okay? What does this mean? What What do you think he's referring to here? What is it that Satan would take advantage of? Okay, so Satan used God's commandment to deceive Eve, so it's possible that we misunderstand God's commandment, and actually, there are many people that, in putting a person out and not allowing them back in, think that they are doing God's command. think that, you know, it's like we have to keep ourselves pure, keep ourselves apart from negative influence, even from someone who's repented, um, and not allow them back in, and we believe ourselves to be righteous, actually, this is like the, what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees refused to accept anyone even who had repented, right? Not believing that they were actually sincere in any repentance so they should accept them again. So that certainly is a deception. What, what else does he mean? Think about the man, the man himself. So after he is put out of the church, what does he feel? He's, he's sad, right? And if that period of time Again, because of our self-righteousness, if we feel like, you know what, we don't want to let him back in the church. Okay, what will this eventually lead this man to do? Despair, right? He will fall into despair believing that there is no hope for him. That even after having repented, there is no hope. That even after having repented, that he doesn't believe that God can forgive. And, and sadly, we experience this, right? Like, how often is it that we sin? And then even after we repent and even after we confess, there's a part of us that feels how is it that God could forgive me? Have I really truly been forgiven or not? Or do I walk around with a feeling of constant guilt all the time about sins that, that I've already confessed? okay? So this is the, the that Satan taking advantage of us, right? If we do not bring bring this man back into the church promptly when it is the appropriate time, even like like even though he's repented, We don't leave him there for a long time outside of the church. Then the the, the devil will take something that maybe was originally intended for good and he will turn it into evil, right? He will turn it into something for the destruction of this man because this man will fall into despair. St. Augustine, he says, do not ever fall into despair. You have been created in the image of God and he who created you as such has himself become man. The blood of the only begotten son was shed for your sake. This is for our salvation. This is for our forgiveness, right? We should never feel that when we repent that God has refused to accept our repentance. Even this man who has been put out of the church or excommunicated, that after he repents, he can come back again and accepted by the Lord and should be also accepted by the church. Lest Satan take advantage of us trying to discipline him and make us to forget that this is not a, a, a final judgment we have made on him. No, this is a, a stepping stone to forgiveness, a stepping stone to repentance. Now that he has repented, we should bring him back. Did you have a question? Yeah. Oh, oh. With
1: despair,
0: despair is a sin. Oh. Yes. Despair is a sin, and despair is a lack of faith, right? Yeah. Despair, despair is saying that my choices are greater than the blood of Christ. Saying that my decisions, my sins are so Great that the blood of Christ cannot erase them, right? If Christ was asking the Father to forgive even those people who were crucifying him on the cross, that is the extent of the mercy of God that he is seeking to, to, to forgive and have mercy even on his crucifiers, right? We should always remind ourselves of this. We are not good, you know, like like we believe inherently. Like, like maybe subconsciously without realizing it, part of us believes that God is happy with us when we are good. God is happy with us when we are good. And, and what do I mean by that? I mean that we believe that we can be good in, our, in and of ourselves. You know, like if you look at the holiness of God, the, the righteousness of God, the infiniteness of God, and you compare that to us. Okay, what good exactly can we do to add something to God, what good can we do to impress God with you know what is it we can do to to make God really happy. You know God wants us like he loves us right and and when we fall he forgives our sins, but it is not because we are good right because we are always be sinners, regardless of how many times we confess and how many times we repent we will always be sinners, you know. And so salvation is because of God's mercy to us, not because we are good and have everything lined up right and do everything right, because that's not the case. When we fall into despair because we look at ourselves, you know, like a person can, a person who really examines themselves, they have like one or two paths. Either they examine themselves and they find that they are or more than two. They examine themselves, they find that they are good. They look at themselves and say, there's nothing wrong with me. Very prideful, Right thinking there's nothing wrong with me at all. I have nothing to confess. I'm good as is, I don't even need God's forgiveness. Okay, that's one way. Another way is I find that I'm not good. So when I find that I'm not good, either I'm going to fall into despair believing that I can never be forgiven because my sin is too great, or I'm going to like learn truly what does it mean to rely on the mercy of God because he is is the savior, because he is the one who saves me. He is the one who has mercy on me despite my sin. And that out of those three options, that's where we wanna be, right? And actually the first two options are prideful. The option where me thinking that I'm good in everything and the option of me falling to despair is also prideful, right? It's, it's saying that I am my sin is too great for God to forgive, okay? Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and the door was opened to me by the Lord. So here, here he's switching gears to something else. He's speaking about his ministry and how Christ gave him the opportunity for ministry. Okay. Um, After he wrote his first epistle, um, uh, like he, um, you know, he, he, he now is, he's speaking about like the joy that came to him because God is opening up a new door of ministry and preaching for him. Okay. This is what he's going to talk about now. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. So he is he's waiting for the coming of Titus to tell him the news of the Corinthians, right? Because St. Paul could not go to them directly. So he wants to hear what's happening with them. So Titus was supposed to come to him and deliver him the news about the Corinthians to him. So he's like waiting patient. Okay. Okay. Um, but St. Paul, he had to leave and to go to Macedonia, and he was hoping that he was gonna find Titus in Macedonia so that he could hear the news of the Corinthians there, okay? So that he would hear whatever joyful news there was to hear. Now, thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place, okay? So it's as though he's saying that when Titus came, It took away all of his fears. It brought victory um, because because he saw that there was genuine repentance and change in the Corinthians. And so he is joyful to hear this news that he would hear from Titus, okay? Um, And here he is saying what, uh, thanks be to God who always leads us to triumph in Christ. And this is an important thing to kind of meditate on a little bit, is what is this triumph in Christ? a lot of times we feel like we are not triumphant. You know, a lot of times it feels like we are actually defeated. Uh, we look at different situations, whether those situations be personal uh, and different challenges that we face, and sometimes we feel like we don't deal with them in the right way, or things around us are happening out of control and are difficult for us to to manage them, to deal with them, to 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 you know continue faithfully through them, and so on, or whether it happened maybe on the level of the church when we see. That the world around us continues to fall into darkness into wickedness and more and more as the church, we feel like um, we have no place in the world. Right, the world has rejected this message of truth that we are that we are bringing so whether it be on the personal level or whether it be on the level of the church as a whole. To always remember that we have triumph And this triumph isn't necessarily visible to us isn't necessarily obvious to us on a day to day basis the triumph comes at the end you know like in a war you have different like phases of the war you have some phases of the war where the church seems to be winning like if you look at the time of say um, emperor constantine emperor constantine he made christianity to be the official religion of the empire and all of the pagan temples were closed and converted to churches and christianity began to flourish and spread faster than it had ever spread in any other time in history all the persecution stopped you know that you could say was a major triumph for Christianity. But then you had other times where the churches are being closed, where Christians are being killed, where, where, where Christianity as a, as a message is being attacked, you know. So it's another phase or another season of time. But ultimately at the end, whether there is like a high, a high point or a low point, the ultimate triumph is in Christ. And this is what we always have to remember is that the, the triumph has already been won. Like we're not in a war where the outcome is uncertain. You know, in any other war that you think about, while the war is going on, you don't know who's gonna win. You know, sometimes one, one side might be winning and sometimes the other side might be winning and then you don't know who's gonna win. The war that we're in is already won. Christ has already won the war and he's already declared victory in the war. But we haven't yet reached the end of the battle so that that victory is realized. So that victory is, is, is complete. But on a personal level, the victory that we have is the victory of salvation, is the victory of sanctification, is the victory that no one can take my faith away from me. No one can take my salvation away from me. No one can take me out of the hands of the Father. That is victory. I can't change what people will do to me. I can't change what people will say about me. I can't change what attacks might come to the church or to me personally. But I can, I, but I, I rest assured, and the ultimate outcome is assured. The al- ultimate outcome is decided. This is the triumph that we have in Christ, and that we diffuse the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Meaning, whenever we go anywhere, it is like simply our presence. It's like the knowledge of God is like an aroma that is coming out of us, filling every place that we go with the aroma of Christ. If you can imagine that, imagine that everywhere we go, It's like the aroma of Christ fills the the place. And that when people see us, they see something different, something unique, something attractive, that even though maybe when, uh, when, when we stand and we say what we believe, they don't believe it, but when they see how we behave, when they see how we speak, when they see how we love, that this is something that actually attracts them to learn more and know more about who we are, right? This is the fragrance of Christ, that wherever we go, the fragrance of Christ is emanating, emanating from us. For we are to God, the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, meaning what? What does it mean that we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved? So, so who are those who are being saved? Who are, who are the people that are being saved? The righteous, the righteous who are where? The Christians, right. right? Like in the church, like the Christians, right? So he's saying we are the fragrance of Christ to the Christians, meaning in the company of Christians, in the company of the church, we are the fragrance of Christ. And then when we are, and who who, who are those who are perishing? Like the rest of the world, unbelievers, right? Even among the unbelievers, we are also the fragrance of Christ. So no matter where we go, whether we are in the church, whether we are outside of the church, whether we are at school or at work or a Bible study or wherever, we are the fragrance of Christ. Again, what is fragrance of Christ? It means that we are emanating the aroma of Christ. We are living Christ-like. We are, our faith is so strong that it can be smelled, right? That's what the fragrance of Christ. So he's saying we are not double-minded. Right, we are not. We are one person. Whether I am in the church, whether I am outside the church, wherever I am, I'm the fragrance of Christ, and that people see me, it's like they see Christ. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Okay, so what does it mean to the to the believer? Right. We confirm the truth of God and his word. We confirm the truth of God to the believers. We are a living confirmation of the truth of Christianity through our actions through our words through, you know, our teaching everything that we do. It is the aroma of life that leads the people around us to life, you know, Like the bishop, for instance, when we are with the bishop and we hear his words and we hear his teaching and we see his example, we are motivated to live Christ's life. We are motivated and we learn from him right, this is the aroma of life leading to life okay to the unbeliever we are a beacon of truth, and we are also a warning. We are a warning essentially saying anyone who does not accept these words or does not have this faith or this belief, there is a warning okay. You know, this is, this is, be careful what you're doing, because I'm coming, presenting the truth. And if you reject the truth, then you're rejecting salvation. If you reject the truth, right, and you reject my words, then you're rejecting, rejecting your own salvation, your own eternal life, you're rejecting. So in that sense, it becomes instead the fragrance of Christ. It's like that fragrance becomes like a foul smell, something that is, is, is detestable by those people, right? The people that reject this this truth, okay? When he says who is sufficient for these things, he's essentially asking who is worthy of doing this this task? Like, who is worthy to be this person who carries the fragrance of Christ with him? This great responsibility to go everywhere. Like, when I go to school, every single student sees me as the fragrance of Christ. They will judge Christ because of me. Like what do they see me do? Knowing that I'm a Christian, do they see me curse? Do they see me lie? Do they see me do those things? If they see me do those things and they know that I am supposed to be the fragrance of Christ, then they will say, Well, this is Christ. Christ is the liar. Christ is the liar. Christ is the cheater. Christ is the cursor. Christ is this. Because if I am claiming to be the fragrance of Christ, and I am my faith is known, and people know that I am a Christian, then they will judge this fragrance, right? Based on based on Who I am for, we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Who are those who peddle the word of God? What does it mean to peddle the word of God? What does it mean to peddle something? Not, not like bicycle pedal, the other kind of pedal. To pedal means like to trade, right? Or to sell, okay? So he's saying, we are not like the false prophets. When they come with the word of the, that they claim to be the word of God, what do they really care about? They care about themselves. They care about their own authority. They care about their own esteem. They care about what people think of them. This is why there were many people that were joyful when St. Paul was in prison and they would go and preach and and receive attention for their preaching to themselves instead of St. Paul. People were envious of St. Paul and on all of the attention that he was getting, okay? So those false teachers who all they care about is not the truth and not the salvation of the people, all they care about is attention to themselves. What is it that I can gain from the ministry? What is it that I can get out of it, right? So he's saying, we are not like those false teachers that are trying to sell the word of God, meaning I'm giving you the word of God, but I want something in return, which is your esteem, your attention, your adoration, your admiration, right? I'm not looking for anything in return. We're not peddling the word of God. We're giving it to you for free. And not only are we giving it to you for free, but we are suffering and being afflicted for the sake of the word of God to give it to you. Meaning we are willing to go through any type of suffering To give you this word, because that is how precious and important it is right, we gain nothing and we benefit nothing from this ministry, we just want you to have salvation okay we speak in the sight of God in Christ, we are speaking the truth before God with all sincerity right not for anything in return. Any questions about that chapter before we move on. Okay. Chapter three, do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? St. Paul is wanting to emphasize again, similar to what he said in the previous verse, the ministry that he is serving is a divine ministry. It's a divine ministry. It is ordained by God. It is for the purpose of serving God. God is the one who sent him for a mission of salvation to the world. Okay? It is not a ministry of words, just empty words. It is not a human message. It is not seeking to gain attention for himself. It is only seeking to please God and and delivering this message. Okay? So whether this truth that he is declaring is popular or unpopular, it doesn't matter. He is not looking for commendation He is not looking for praise He is not looking for people to say you did a great job St Paul, we love you so much. All he cares about is the salvation of the people, regardless of whether it's easy or whether it's hard, regardless of what he has to do okay this concept of saying the truth. Regardless of outcome is like a lost art in our society this doesn't exist anymore, the idea of i'm going to say the truth. And I don't care what the outcome is. I don't care what people say about me, right? Because and what happens today when you say the truth, regardless of what anyone thinks, well, you'll be criticized, you'll be insulted, you'll be canceled, you'll be demonized, even by people that do the same thing. Even, even, even by people that like hypocritically um, have done the same thing that you did. Like, let's let's say a person is criticized because they did something they shouldn't have done. Other people who have done a similar thing, they will still try to cancel you and destroy your reputation, all that. Saying the truth and saying when it's unpopular is something that we as Christians like have to embrace because more and more it's becoming that you cannot, you cannot declare the truth of God while at the same time pretending to be of the world. It used to be a lot more than today. That the world was a lot more sane. Than, than it is today. It used to be the case. That you could be more easily blend into. The world. While at the same time being a believer. It's not like that anymore. Now, now it's like. If you declare any type of faith in God. You are immediately setting yourself up against. The world. And that world will seek to destroy you for what you have declared to be true. And that's why we have to to realize this and we have to understand this and we have to be expecting of what is going to happen when we are faithful Christians in the world. Year after year, it's going to get even more difficult. Okay, The the values and the morals of the world are completely against God, completely. Like I said, it, it used to be a little better, It's 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 more every year by year, it's accelerating. The the principles, the values of the world are completely against God. So anytime we say something, not even religious, like I'm I'm not talking even about speaking about religion, I'm thinking about reason. Just speaking reason, right? Reason that's been enlightened by the mind of Christ about worldly things, just about what makes sense to be done. Okay. Even that is demonized and, and and people fight against us. So this is a lost art in society. Like a, a great example of this is a prophet in the Old Testament, whose name was Micaiah. This man was a righteous prophet. And and, and he, he worked for King Ahab, Like he was like, uh, King Ahab always called him this prophet, and he, he wanted his input on things. So when King Ahab wanted to go to war against the Syrians, he uh, would speak to several prophets to see from them, whether the outcome of the war would be in his favor or not. And so he'd always say about Micaiah, this prophet, that he hates him. Why does he hate him? Because he doesn't tell him what he wants to hear. He he, he tells him the opposite of what he wants to hear. And he would prefer to go to these other prophets because they were false prophets, and they would tell him whatever he wants to hear. So they would go tell him, you know, live forever king, you're going to be, you know, victorious in the battle, and so on, and so on, and so on. And so he'd always like to go to them. But Micaiah would always be truthful. And he would tell him, you're going to lose the war. If you go to war, you're going to lose the war. Right. And he never wanted to hear. He never wanted to, 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 to hear what he did not want. Okay. And this was the problem with the Israelites in general. Okay. Jeremiah, the prophet, he was the most despised prophet because he was the one always preaching that the people were going to go into exile and God is going to do all these things. Nobody wanted to listen to him. Right. Nobody wants to listen to the person who is coming and saying, your decisions are wrong decisions. Your lifestyle is a wrong lifestyle. Your outcome will be destruction. Nobody wants to listen to that person and the world mocks such a person. You know, the world mocks a person who is coming to rebuke the actions of the majority and saying your the outcome of your behavior will be your destruction. People don't want to hear that. Okay? So here St. Paul is making it very clear. I'm coming to tell you the truth. Okay, I am not seeking commendation from you. I'm not seeking praise from you. Um, and, and I'm not coming to flatter you. I'm not coming to tell you what you want to hear. I'm telling you the message is from God. This is a divine ministry. It is a, mystery. it is a ministry of the word of God. Word of God is coming to me and I'm declaring it to you. You are, uh, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read, by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh that is of the heart. What is it? What does that mean? Yes, like what is an epistle? Like a letter, a letter declaring the truth, the truth of God, right? So he's saying, You are like letters of the truth of God, but that these letters are not written with ink, like an actual epistle, like when St. Paul would write an epistle, he would write it on ink or uh, in the Old Testament, like the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments were written on stone, okay? So this is the word of God. He's saying, you are like an epistle written not with ink, but in your heart because of who you are. You declare the truth of God simply by your life, simply by who you are, okay? And so when you are living a certain way, right, you are declaring the truth of God um, in everything that you do. The world is filled with all kinds of doctrinal statements, like different philosophies about things. People have certain beliefs. Okay. And a lot of those statements, a lot of those philosophies, they profess different beliefs. Okay. Um, And so does Christianity. we, We have certain beliefs. Okay. But what is going to convince someone of the truth? Of the philosophy, or the truth of religion, or the truth of Christianity, it is going to be that something about us is different. It is the way we choose to live is different than the rest of the world. It's not just about doctrinal statements. You know, someone can try to evaluate whether one set of doctrinal statements uh, makes more sense than another one, and some people think this, and some people think this. This is why, like, you know, Saint Paul, when he preached to the Corinthians in in the first epistle, he said in chapter two. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. We as Christians get very much caught up in the idea of apologetics and trying to prove or defend our faith based on attacks. Like people will say, you know what, this verse over here says this, and this verse over here says this, and we can't reconcile these verses, and so there's a contradiction, so Christianity is false. And then we get put on the defensive. Say, okay, well, let me go figure it out. So we find other explanations to explain why this is not actually a contradiction for many, many reasons. And there are no contradictions in the Bible. It's infallible. Okay, The point that I'm trying to make is that we get caught up on the idea of like a scavenger hunt of trying to go from point to point to point to point and trying to defend these things. Why do we do that? Are we saying that if we successfully do that, that this person we're talking to is suddenly going to believe? And now this person, like all the obstacles of faith has been removed. Maybe for some people, these points are very important, but to many, it's just simply an attack or it's an excuse to justify a lack of faith. When St. Paul comes and he says what my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. He's talking about real power in himself received by God and, and a, a powerful example of the Christian faith in his life, in his words, in, 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 in his sacrifice, in everything that he did, that goes so far beyond uh quibbling arguments of minutiae, you know, so so far beyond small little details that is not really the main problem or the main issue that, a, that is keeping a person from faith. So you have to be careful with this. Yes, we should answer questions, and yes, we should understand our faith, but. At the same time, we should realize that the greatest thing that is going to get people to believe is not answers to questions. It's going to be our life. It's going to be that we have the power of God working in us. That is what is powerful, right? Not with uh, not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and power. If we have the spirit of God, that spirit will work and and to convert. That spirit will work to bless. That spirit will work to convince. But if all I have is answers to questions, kind of without the working of the spirit in me, that is not going to be convincing. So here St. Paul, he wants the Corinthians to have that same spirit. He wants them to be truly living sacrifices. He wants them to truly live this life the way he is living it. And we Have such trust through Christ toward God. So we believe that Christ will will accomplish this in us to make us these vessels full full of the Spirit. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Okay. God is the source of holiness and power, right? So it is through the spirit that St. Paul is successful in planting the, tr- the truth in the Corinthians, right? We are not sufficient in ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. St. Paul is saying, my ministry is successful through the work of God in it, not through myself because I'm a clever person or because I'm an eloquent person, okay? Then he goes on to speak about the covenant, okay? We are ministers of this covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What does that mean? What is it? What what is the letter? Why does the letter kill? And how does the spirit give life? words. Okay, words the words of what? The words of the commandments, the words of the law. Okay. So the law of the old Testament, what is the law of the old Testament? Like the 10 commandments, the law of Moses that God gave to Moses on the mountain, all of those laws. Right? So why does it mean that the letter kills? Does that mean that the word of God, the commandments of God, kill? What does that mean? They couldn't,
1: go to paradise.
0: They couldn't what? They
1: couldn't go to paradise like they all
0: did. And why is that? Because uh, it was,
1: there was because Christ had a blood cross and His blood, His blood, His blood to save us for
0: our salvation. Yes. But but before that, like why did did he have to come for our salvation? Because they sinned. And how did we know that we sinned? By the law. law. So, So when it says that the letter kills, it means that once I receive the commandment of God, I suddenly die. In the sense of what? I realize that my actions, that my weakness is against the commandment of God for the first time. Now I realize actually it reminds me of I think King Josiah. King Josiah was a young king, and during the time of his reign and the previous reign, the people had completely abandoned the ways of God, abandoned the commandments of God, abandoned all the sacrifices, the feasts, the fast, everything. Okay. And but King Josiah, he was a righteous king. And so he wanted to revive. And so they found the book of the law, right? Think about that. This is a generation that no one had ever taught them the law. Okay. In Israel. No one had taught them the law. They didn't know anything. And they discovered this book of the law in the temple, so they read this law and they realize that they are not carrying out anything that God has commanded them to do. And King Josiah like tears his clothes, you know it's like he's so convicted now realizing that they are not obeying God, so this is like like us like in the Old Testament like the people receive the commandment of God, and now we realize that everything that we do is. So many things that we do are sinful.
1: Not only what
0: we do is sinful, but we are unable to live without sin because of our human weakness, right? So it is so, like, it is, it essentially, God is saying the commandment that you must follow for eternal life is impossible for me to follow. It's like if somebody says, in order for you to have eternal life, you have to be able to jump 20 feet in the air. I can't, I can't, no matter how hard I try, I cannot jump 20 feet in the air. Okay, so it's impossible for me. I don't know, maybe some people can, I don't know. Uh, But (laughs) no, So, so it's impossible. It's like it brings sorrow, right? Because the letter kills, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So what does it mean that the spirit gives life? In the New Testament, okay, what is it that God gave? God gave the spiritual understanding of the Old Testament, the spiritual understanding of the commandments, and he gave the power to fulfill. Right, what God gave in the New Testament was the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit in us gives us the ability to jump 20 feet. That's what the Holy Spirit is about, that's what it's doing in us, that's what He's doing in us. He's allowing us to reach the, the high standards that God has called us for. It doesn't mean that we don't have weaknesses, and it doesn't mean that we don't fail, but through spiritual struggle and spiritual practices and the sacraments and asking God to to help us, we can become what God calls us to be. Because otherwise it would be unfair of him to ask of us to do something when he doesn't give us the ability to do it. The Old Testament was designed to make the people realize that they are in need of salvation. That's what the Old Testament was about. The Old Testament was about making the people realize that the standards of God are far beyond their ability. People get stuck on a lot of the rules. You know, we were talking about the Q&A. Somebody had asked about this passage in Leviticus 19.19 about why did God command them to say not mix uh, different uh, species of livestock together? Or why not to he said what God said, don't even wear a clothing of mixed linen. Like don't have like different types of cloth uh, woven together in, in a garment that you wear. Kind of like polyester says, so don't wear polyester, okay? Is it because God cares about polyester? God is caring about a message, and that message that he kept repeating again and again is do not mix with the Gentiles. Like, just as you don't mix these things together that are dissimilar, don't mix with the Gentiles because they will be a source of sin for you. Everything in the Old Testament had a spiritual meaning. The people didn't understand that. Meaning. They were supposed to realize that the command of God is beyond fulfillment. We cannot fulfill it. And so we are in need of a savior. We are in need of someone to come and to to, to save us from the requirements of the law. And this is a big part of the of the epistle to the Romans is, is focusing on this point. Okay, how can we be saved from the requirements of the law? And this is what the New Testament is about. This is what was fulfilled in Christ. Okay. So in the Old Testament, if I realized that I'm in need of salvation, then I would be expecting and hopeful for a savior to come, the one who would Uh, grant me to to, to not die according to the requirements of the law. So here St. Paul is saying that they should be living in the spirit, not in the letter. They should be living in the spirit, the spirit of God, right? We are ministers in the spirit. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious? What does that mean? What is the ministry of death? Commandments, what'd you say in the old Testament, right? Like the commandments of the old Testament. This is the ministry of death because it is through the ministry of death that all the people realize that they are dead. All the people realize that like when it says that when the law came, so did death. It is. It is the letter is what killed. Okay, this is the ministry of death. It did not bring any good news, right? The word of God did not bring any good news. It bring. It It brought the realization of death that we are dead and sin. Okay, so but this ministry of death, when Moses received the commandments, the Ten Commandments on written on stone, how glorious was it that. Uh, Moses was on the mountain and it quaked, and there was darkness and there was thunder and lightning, and the face of Moses shined, right? All of that for this ministry of death. So, St. Paul is saying if this ministry of death was so glorious, okay, how much more glorious is the ministry of the Spirit? Okay. How much more glorious is the ministry of the New Testament? How much more glorious is the word of God that Christ is bringing? How much more glorious is the preaching, the message that we are preaching today? You know, imagine what it would have been like to preach in the Old Testament to the Gentiles. What is it you're going to tell them? You're going to go to them and say, you have to follow these commandments. And if you don't follow these commandments, you're going to be punished. And you have to be circumcised. And you have to offer these bloody sacrifices. And you can't do anything wrong. And you can't wear polyester. Like, all, like, like that, is the, that is the content of the message that they would be able to preach to the Gentiles. But there was no hope, there was no mercy, there was no salvation, there was no power, there was nothing beyond we realize that we are dead in sin, right? And we have many, many, many requirements that we have to obey. But the message of the New Testament is a different message. The message of the New Testament brings power, it brings hope, it brings uh, the, the, the expectation of eternal life. It brings something good and positive, right? This is why he's saying the ministry of the Spirit will be even more glorious. It's even more glorious than, than the ministry of the Old Testament. Yeah. I mean, I have a
1: question, so what kept them going. Like, like, going, kept them going? Like, for us, I mean, we know that the penalty of sin is death, and it still is, right? But we still have hope in salvation and the was given to us. So, they didn't have that hope, and they, they didn't I mean, they, they were fortunate enough to have the prophets that preached about the Messiah coming and God knows when, right? That would be on the cross and restore us. But
0: what well, would keep them going, you know? So we, we look forward to the heavenly reward, right? We look forward to the spiritual reward. Back then, they looked forward to the physical reward, right? They looked forward to God destroying their enemies. You know they look forward to long life and many children. They look they look forward to the physical blessings that God promised them whenever they would obey Him, right? And that was all they could understand because they couldn't understand eternal life. They couldn't understand resurrection from the dead. They couldn't understand those things. So their their focus was very much about living a long and fruitful life in the world. Okay, and so many of the promises. If you go look at many of the promises. Uh, in the old testament they're very much focused on things that God will fulfill in your life, you know, physically, because because they couldn't understand beyond that.
1: I feel like just as hard as it is for them to understand. That's all, it's also hard kind of, for me to understand that because we're always like kind be humble, you know, you don't need all these riches. You know, we have a different heavenly report. But... Because we're comparing
0: it to something that's higher. Yeah. But imagine that you never knew about anything higher. That that was the highest. That was the highest thing you can get, you know. Uh, similar to like people maybe who like don't believe in God today. Like, what is the greatest reward you can get? Pleasure and money and power, right? That's what I go after because I can't I can't imagine anything better than that, right? Yeah. This, you know, was it the same for both
1: the Jews and the Gentiles? Like, if, if speaking about like what kept them going. Yeah, because they're the people of birth. So yeah, but we keep about the Gentiles? I mean the
0: Gentiles they had their own religions, right? Yeah. Right. So the Gentiles, they, they had a whole different system of belief. They had a different system of practices and what they believed about, you know, different religions they might have believed in, in some kind of afterlife. For instance, the ancient Egyptians, they believed in some kind of afterlife, but it's not, but it's unclear. Like, like, like I'm not I'm not trying to say that the Hebrews didn't believe there was afterlife, they just didn't understand it. And they didn't understand what was waiting for them or the joy of it. No, right. I, mean, I mean,
1: like, did they even have a, I know this I already know the answer but I kind of don't understand did they even have like a chance of making it like into heaven? So, I mean they would I mean they would have had to become Jews, right? You don't know the Gentiles, yeah, they would have had to become Jews. I mean,
0: well uh, yeah okay. I mean God is going to judge or have, will judge everyone according to um, what they knew, right? Okay. Because whether you were Jew or whether you were Gentile, there was nothing that you could do to actually be absolved from your sin, right? Until the coming of Christ. Oh, okay. Okay, so, so God is going to judge according to their conscience. Okay? Yeah.
1: Necessarily
0: I mean, I, I don't want to. I don't want to say that we have an answer, okay? But but what I'm trying to say is that no one, even the Jews, went into paradise in the Old Testament, and, and so everybody will be judged by God according to His economy for them based on their situation. Like if you look at someone like Cornelius, for instance, okay, Cornelius he was a Gentile in the Book of Acts, and uh, an angel appeared to him. And essentially told him that you are, you know, worthy to, you know, the St. Peter will come and preach to you and, and you will have salvation. Well, why did why did God choose this man? Well, it says that he was a righteous man and he gave alms and he prayed, right? So God judged him, even though he was not a Jew and he was not a Christian, God judged him as being worthy of salvation because he was living according to his own conscience and living in a righteous way, Right. So similarly, God could look at anyone who is a Gentile and see that they are living in a righteous way and call them for salvation. You know, It's not like, these things are, are kind of a mystery, right? Like, like we, 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 can't, we can't point and say, this is the mechanics of how God is going to do it. It can be different from everyone. Like we know people, for instance, who um, became Christians and they didn't even have access to a Bible and God gave them a Bible. Bible appeared you know, or people who didn't have access to any kind of church, Christ himself appeared to them and taught them the faith. Look at St. Paul, for instance, you know, St. Paul, he was a Jew. God chose him to be an apostle. So how did he learn? Christ appeared to him and taught him in the desert, right? So there is no, like, these things are not like a mechanical thing. Like you can't say, well, what is the rule? Okay, well, if, if these conditions are met, then Christ will appear to you. If these conditions are met, then an angel appeared to you. If these conditions are met, then, God is going to treat everyone differently, right? I think that the, the fundamental thing for us to, to know is that Christ is merciful, and that He is a fair and just judge, and He's going to treat everyone fairly, right? What does that mean? What does that look like in the life of individual people? I don't know.
1: Yeah. Okay. Sure.
0: Okay. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, which is the Old Testament, the ministry of righteousness, which is in the New Testament, exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. Meaning the glory of the Old Testament is like nothing compared to the glory of the New Testament. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious, okay? The Old Covenant, which was passing away, was still glorious because going back to how the way that Moses received the Ten Commandments and his face was shining and all of that, but the New Covenant is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. So in the Old Testament, because Moses' face was shining, he put a veil to cover his face so people would not see it would not see this glory in him. Okay, That was Moses. Okay, In Hebrews 10, okay, what does it say? It says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So you see, this is the status of the Old Testament. Okay, it is not possible for the the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Um, And this was a shadow of the things to come. We see this truth revealed in the New Testament. Okay. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read a veil lies on their hearts. He's saying those people who still do not believe in Christ, those people who still do not have this um, ministry of the spirit, and they're still focusing on this ministry of death, that that when they um, read it, okay, they're reading it with like a veil, like we, when we read the old Testament, now we read it in a different light. We read it with an understanding of how this testament was fulfilled in the new testament when we read the prophecies we understand how these prophecies were fulfilled in the person of christ right we understand for instance the 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 relationship between circumcision and baptism right it is not that the physical act of circumcision is what brings salvation but it was a symbol a shadow of the spiritual act of baptism as christians when we read the old testament we read it with clarity okay but he's saying Those who do not accept this new ministry of the spirit and are still focusing on the ministry of death, the Old Testament covenant, when they read the Old Testament, because they have a veil covering their eyes like they are blinded, they cannot see Christ. They cannot understand it, right? Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. They cannot understand these symbols, their relevance, what they mean, their importance. And that's why, the focus, let's say in the Jewish faith is so much on these little details, you know? Like, okay, we, can't, we can only travel a certain distance on the Sabbath day. Um, we should not eat certain foods. Um, all these little practices, because they when, they, when they see these Old Testament commands, they don't understand the spiritual significance of them. Instead, they just take them literally, like the letter, by the letter, not by the Spirit. When he says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life in the letter there is no salvation there is no amount of these laws that you can fulfill to please God right but in the spirit there is eternal life nevertheless when one turns to the Lord the veil is taken away like the the blindfold is taken away that what I could not see before now I see now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is there is liberty but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Here he speaks about where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And I think it's a, maybe good just for a couple minutes to talk about liberty. Because we are in the land of liberty. We live in the place where there is liberty. More liberty than any other else in the place in the world. What does liberty mean? What does it mean to have liberty, to have freedom? Okay. You know, there's a difference between freedom to sin and freedom from sin. Freedom to sin means I am free to decide anything I want to do, I can do with no restriction. And according to America, that is freedom, that is liberty, freedom to sin. I can choose to do, I can choose to live, I can choose to have whatever belief I want, I can choose to marry who I want, I can choose to live with who I want, I can choose to say what I want, I can choose to indulge in whatever way that I want, that is freedom. That is what we offer here in this country. Okay. What is the kind of liberty here that St. Paul is speaking about? It is the freedom not to sin, but the freedom from sin. It is to say what I actually, when I am living this freedom according to the Western culture, okay according to this culture of liberty that we are in, I'm actually not free at all. I'm actually a slave because I cannot stop myself from doing those things. They are the ones actually have control over me. Like when I have a sensual desire, that desire has control over me. I am the slave of that desire. I'm not the master of that desire. I'm not free or have any liberty in that moment. I am consumed by slavery, right? When I choose to take drugs, I become quickly a slave and an addict to those drugs that I take. You know, so so from the Christian liberty perspective, the liberty is the freedom from being mastered by anything. The freedom from being mastered by anything. This is why when we look at, say, like um, the Desert Fathers who lived in the desert, right? How is it that they had liberty? You know, the world looks at them and say, you guys, You, you, you like, wasted your life. You gave up every liberty. You gave up every freedom. You gave up every joy. You gave up every pleasure in the world, and you decided to go and to live in the desert, isolated from anyone where you can't enjoy life at all. So from the worldly perspective, they're very unfree, right? Because they can't do all these things. But from the Christian perspective, they are the most free, because they are the ones who never allowed sin to enter into them and to become slaves to sin. So this, this is the kind of liberty that St. Paul is speaking about here. Okay? In Galatians 5, St. Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Through love serve one another. Use your liberty for good. Be in control of your liberty. Be in control of what you choose to do. Don't let those things control you. Um, also, he says what, with unveiled face, meaning without any blindfold, we can see the Lord clearly. We are being transformed by the Lord, and through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we are going from glory to glory, from from one level of glory to a higher glory, to a higher glory, to a higher glory, right through the work of the Spirit in us. So we are not just um, like bystanders that are like, we we simply like, okay, as Christians, what are we? We we adopt a, a, a worldview, a certain set of beliefs. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, I believe in these things. That is what Christianity is. That is not what Christianity is. Christianity is not just a bunch of beliefs. Christianity is a life, and it is not just an earthly life. It is a supernatural life. It is a life that is that is goes beyond anything that could be called life in this world. Yes, we have beliefs, but that is not what it means to be a Christian, is that I just, have a certain set of beliefs as opposed to a person who is a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or a Jew, where we all have different sets of beliefs, right? That is not what categorizes a Christian. That is what the world thinks Christianity is because the world has not experienced. It. The true Christian is the one who is full of the spirit of God and the spirit of God informs him or her, the spirit of God protects him or her. The spirit of God fills that person with joy. The spirit of God gives like a, uh, uh, like, like an, a true depth and wisdom of understanding of the world and of reality and of heaven, right? It is a power. It is not a knowledge. It is not just a knowledge. It is not just, I know certain things to be true. No, it is, it is, it is a transformation from glory to glory. Okay. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We are becoming more and more in the image of Christ just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We are becoming Christ-like. We are becoming like God. We are becoming like God. The characteristics that God has, He is imparting those to us. Not in the sense that we are going to be worshipped, but in the sense that He is holy, we are becoming holy. He is patient, we are becoming patient. He is righteous, we are becoming righteous. He is wise, we are becoming wise. In every characteristic that God has, He is sharing those with us so that we are becoming ourselves supernaturally. We ourselves are becoming higher than the world. This is why God says that the church is the one who is to judge the world because the wisdom of the church is the wisdom of God. It is not the wisdom of man. The wisdom of man is the one who is veiled, the one who is blindfolded, cannot see, right? And even when we look at things like religion, like Christianity, we see it in a very cold, distant and and uninformed way. It's Just a set of beliefs. You have these set of beliefs, I have these set of beliefs. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is power. Okay. So here Saint Paul is speaking about that power and the ministry of the spirit. So we're at a good stopping point, and God willing. Next time we can um, start with chapter four. Any questions before we conclude? Okay.
1: Uh, I'm going to question. Yeah. So one. Uh, so um so in chapter two. Why did Paul, so why did Paul test them instead of
0: God testing them? The test you're saying, why did why did St. Paul yeah, test
1: yeah, them? Yeah, yeah, Mike, 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 In other words, I'm asking, why did Paul test them instead of God testing them? I mean, should have God test them instead of St. Paul?
0: I mean, that's kind of like saying, you know, when you go to your class, your professor is the one who, who administers the test, right? Yeah. St. Paul was their bishop. So St. Paul, and St. Paul was the one who gave them the command to put this man out of the church. So then St. Paul also was the one who told them to bring him back. St. Paul has the authority, right? He has the authority of God. It doesn't mean that he is God, but he has that authority. He is the ambassador. He is the representative. He is the one who has been given the gift of the priesthood to bind and to loose, and and he is using his apostolic authority to um, to test them to see whether they are going to accept this man back again into the church out of love um, or not. So certainly God does test, but that's not this kind of test that St. That Paul is giving. Okay, it's okay, pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God in men, we thank you, O God, for this day, for this opportunity to study your word, to understand it. We ask, O God, that you fill us not only with the knowledge of the scriptures, but of your power, of your spirit itself, that, that transforms us, that changes us, that allows us to grow, that sanctifies us, that removes, O Lord, the blindness of this world, and allows us to see you clearly so that we would love you as you love us, and that we would be motivated and encouraged and be filled with zeal and passion to follow you to the end. We ask, O God, that you protect the church during the dark days that we are in, protect the church as an organization, protect the church and all her members, protect us all, O Lord, and keep us straight in our faith and strengthen, O God, and help us to see more than ever how much we need you and how we, we need your guidance, your wisdom, your salvation, and the stability, O Lord, that you grant to us in in any difficult time. To the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, here is as we pray, thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever, amen. The love of God, the Father, and the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion and the gift of the Holy Spirit, be with you all, go in peace, the peace of the Lord, be with you.